0: Hope you're all doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, We're three weeks in. We're doing a chapter a week. Um, As you know, we've been, hopefully all of you know, we've been preaching through the book of Acts for, I don't know, seems like a long time. I think we're 45 sermons into the book of Acts. When we got to chapter 18, we stopped at chapter 18 as we saw Paul plant the church in Corinth, and so we stopped, and we're going to study the correspondence between Paul and the city of Corinth um, over the next 16 weeks. So there's 16 chapters we'll do that for the next 16 weeks, so basically be throughout the summer, and then we'll go back to the book of Acts. So um, we, we, we may do also 2 Corinthians, that's, that's, a, that's a possibility. But anyway, um, right now we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and as we've been looking at 1 Corinthians I'm sorry, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've looked at 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Uh, And before we get started, just in the biggest, broadest, kind of quickest uh, review, the book of 1 Corinthians, at its broadest sense, is is really broken down into two major sections. Uh, Verses 1 through 6 is the first section, 7 through 16 is the second. uh, Chapters 1 through 6, you can see, if you look at chapter 1, verse 11, it says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. So, Chloe and her people had a list that they gave to Paul of problems in the church at Corinth, which were, they were, they were dividing among, or, or fact, there was factions among uh, leadership. They thought that this guy or this guy or this guy is the greatest. They also had uh, a case of incest. They also had a case of Christians suing other people, and they also had sexual morality. And so Chloe's, Chloe's people wrote to Paul and said, you need to address these things with the city in Corinth. And then after that, if you ch- look at chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, now about the things you wrote. So they had apparently sent some kind of letter to Paul, asked all kinds of questions about head coverings and leader leadership and spiritual gifts and uh, role of women, etc. And so as they're Asking all these things, Paul answers those in the second half. And so right now in 1 Corinthians, where we are going to be in chapter 3, Paul's still answering the question about factions regarding leaders. Uh, we're going to get to the other things when you get to chapter 5 and 6, those last three issues. But really all of chapter chapters 1 through 4 is answering this factions or this... Role of different leaders. You can see the problem itself stated at the very end of verse eleven, into verse twelve of chapter one. It says that there's been reported to me that there's quarrelling among you. What I mean is, each one of you says, "I follow Paul," "I follow Apollos," "I follow Cephas." So, like, I follow this guy because he's the best. No, I follow this guy because this. Well, I follow this guy because he's the best. And Paul's hearing this and, and knowing that this is causing division in the church, and so he's going to write. Uh, in this particular section, uh, the answer to the particular problem, which is the good news of what Christ has done for him trumps all these things. And so you don't need to uh, worry about leaders because you have Jesus and Jesus is the most important. He does this. In chapter 118 through 25, talking about what would be God's foolishness or folly uh, in the gospel. And then he talks about, in chapters 2, 6 through 16, God's wisdom in the gospel. And, and here, as we go to chapter 3, he's going to continue in the argument of trying to address factions in the city. I'm sorry, yeah, factions in the church, in the city of Corinth. But as he's doing this, um, he's, wanting to, uh, he's wanting to talk about leadership in the church and helping them understand that the leaders don't need to be thought of in different kind of levels because really the leadership is all Christ's and since uh, Christ is more important than all the leaders he's going to put them all in kind of a level playing field so I'm going to read the text uh, and then after we read the text um, we'll pray together so if you will stand uh, let's read this together as I as I read it at the very end um, we'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll be, you'll say, thanks be to God. And this is just a reminder of of us all. The reason why we read it out loud like this and stand is to show reverence because we believe this is the Lord's word. The reason why I say this is the Lord's word and you say, thanks be to God is just to put us all in the same mindset before we go in that these are God's words. And therefore, since these are God's words, not, not, not our favorite author, but the author of all things, uh, Since these are God's words, whatever we read, whatever we hear, whatever the Lord presses into us, whatever he reveals to us, whatever he shows you, whatever he convicts you of, you need to submit yourself. I need to submit myself to the things that the Lord says to me today and to you today. So chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh. Um, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, "I follow Paul," and another says, "I follow Paulos, are you not being merely human? Uh, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants for whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you care how he builds upon it. though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated if you want. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have been so gracious as to give us your word. We absolutely didn't deserve this amazing gift, but you have given it to us. And now Lord, as we, as we look at it and seek to understand it, fill us all with the Spirit, including myself, fill us all with the Spirit to see and understand what the Spirit is saying through this text to us as a church, to us as individuals, how we can understand the gospel more deeply, trust in Christ more fully, have our affections stirred and love for Jesus be more stirred, and how even, Lord, we can go and, and live differently today. We thank you, Lord, we pray this all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day if you're a dad. The one day per year that dads are actually appreciated. Um, And so we get to, uh, I kid, um, kind of. So today is Father's Day. uh, And as we're looking at this particular text, it has to do with leadership. It it can be somewhat uh, appropriate for what we're looking at, even as dads uh, in in the Bible would be the leaders of the church. Uh, Now, this particular text that we're looking at I think, is primarily about the leaders. Now, uh, we've been talking about Paul trying to help them understand, as we've seen in in chapters 1 and 2, that uh, even though someone is a leader, they're not to be venerated to to a degree that they are thought of as better or equal with Jesus or someone that they should boast about, that I follow this guy, or follow this guy. Paul is trying to help them see that all these guys are really um, on equal playing field. There's no like Paul, Peter, Apollos. They're all just the Lord's servants, and that it's all about Christ. And so you don't need to be divided in the church. You don't need to be factious in the church about saying that you follow the latest guy or the best guy or the best theologian or the best speaker or whoever, uh, the smartest person. Instead, since we are all Christs, we shouldn't be worrying about who our leaders are. Um, Now, when I say we shouldn't be worrying about it, it doesn't mean that you absolutely don't think about it at all, right? It just means that you don't make them preeminent over jesus and here in this particular chapter as we're looking at chapter three uh he's going to go in and try to uh explain that same argument but as he's doing it he's going to give some some outline qualifications and understandings about leadership itself he's going to help us understand the leadership in the church what it can look like and what would be the proper function of the leadership in the church and help uh, and helping the church fulfill the mission of god so uh you can go ahead and um, put up the main idea of the message. If, if you're one of those that's got five minutes attention span and you're done, and then you have no idea what I said, at least you're going to get what the whole point of the message is right here. Um, I would invite you to continue to listen, and I hope you would, but, but if you can't, here it is right here. You got the whole, me- whole sermon somewhat. Uh, it says this, church leaders are a gift from God to assist your spiritual growth. Assist is, is very key there. Church leaders are not the ones that make you grow. Church leaders are not the substitute for you studying the scriptures and growing in Christ yourself. Uh, church leaders are a gift from God given to the church as, as a whole to help you, to assist you in your growth as a believer in Christ, as, as you deepen your understanding of the gospel. Primarily, here's what they would do. They would preach the gospel and serve the church well. It would preach the gospel and serve the church well. And we're going to see Paul talk about that. Now, as he's doing it, he's certainly going to address the Corinthian church uh, and, and many of their deficiencies. Uh, but, nevertheless, we're going to be able to see it kind of through the prism uh, of leadership. Now, we, we need to realize this before we go in. If, if you feel like you're just an absolute mess and, and, and we, you are are trying to strive to grow if you just had some leaders around you that would help you uh, just pursue Christ, I want, you, I want you to realize this. Hope in leadership uh, is not the best thing to do. Hope in Christ is. These guys had the apostle Paul plant their church and stay with them for a year and a half. And then just three years later, correspond with them and they're an absolute mess. So hope in leadership, even if you had Paul as your, as your leader, doesn't necessarily equal spiritual maturity because Paul's writing to this church. And they're, I mean, they're just a mess. So our hope is in Christ. While leaders can help, while leaders can assist, our hope is in Christ. And if you're a mess, which is fine, you're going to see Paul hold out to this particular, really, really messed up church, that there's lots of hope for them in Christ, which means you're probably not as bad as them. You might be, but you're probably not. And there's super hope for you this morning, wherever you are in your spiritual walk, there's super hope for you, even as Paul addresses them and tells them that there's hope for them. Now, Uh, The first section when Paul's talking to leaders, what we can see in verses 1 through 4 is that leaders must be able to discern the church's maturity level and then properly feed them. You can put up point number one. So as we're talking about church leaders uh, and God's leaders in the church, the first thing that we can see is that leaders must discern the proper maturity of the church and then properly feed them. You can see this. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh as infants in christ now we should we should realize when he's saying i couldn't dress you as spiritual people but people of the flesh he's not saying that they're unbelievers this is an amazing amazing uh, gracious pastoral loving word that paul is giving them he's still even though they're rampantly sinful and have tons of problems in here addressing them as, as believers in jesus infant believers but still christians which should give us all hope you might feel like you're an absolute mess right now. You might feel like you are not living out the way that Jesus wants you to live at all. But here, as messy as they are, he still says, I still think you're believers. You're infants. You've got tons of room to go, but you're not kicked out of the kingdom forever and you have no hope. He still says, infants in Christ. But Paul, as the leader, has to be able to know where they are. I couldn't address you as as, as people uh spiritual people instead as infants so i didn't feed you with solid food i fed you with milk you weren't ready for the solid food and even now you're not ready for for solid food because you're still in the flesh and so i had to feed you with with spiritual milk now we shouldn't confuse this with the first peter and, and the hebrews text about milk where in Having the milk in those particular verses are actually it painted in a positive light. Here in, in Corinthians, the milk is not painted; it's not good to have spiritual milk in First Corinthians. The other text, it was here. You want to be eating meat. But babies, they're infants. If you have babies, you know whenever they come out, you can't just hand them a steak and say, good luck with that, you know, grow yourself up. (laughs) They got to have milk for a while. They got to learn to eat before they can start. They got to get teeth. They got to grow. They got to be able to hold their head up, you know, all kinds of stuff they need to be able to do before they can start eating solid food. And Paul's looking at them and saying, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. You are, but you're a baby. And as a pastor coming in, even now, as I'm talking to you, I have to discern where you are and know your maturity, and I can only feed you milk right now. Uh, So we should note that while I think the the whole of the chapter, uh, of chapter three, is on leadership, and the thrust of point one that I've written is about leadership, and how the leader needs to discern the maturity of them, and properly feed them. That's what every good leader in a church should do. Even a community group leader should know where his group is, what's going on with them, how they are, where they are, and not give them things that they can't understand and yet not also not, not keep them down in, in, the, in the kiddie pool when they need to be, be fed uh, a steak. Um, he needs to know where they are. While I think that the, the whole of the chapter is about leadership, Paul nevertheless is also looking at the Corinthian church and addressing them as highly mature. So uh, we can look at verses one through four from a second angle, not from a leadership angle, but just the, the Corinthian church angle And apply it also to ourselves. Gordon Fee writes uh, very aptly. He he strikes a balance here. As he's talking about the Corinthian church. Um, And so if if you're identifying. Not necessarily with the leaders of Corinth. But with the people of Corinth. Kind of uh, needing to grow. Needing to grow spiritually. If you're identifying more with them. uh, Maybe you're caught in sin. That you can't get out of. Maybe you just uh, have been stuck in. and, And neutral for a long time. And not growing. Here's what I think. Uh, is a direct application. Gordon Fee writes, there's no question that Paul considers the Corinthian friends believers, but they're in fact acting otherwise. So God isn't saying you're not a Christian. He just says you're not acting like one. Paul's whole concern here is to get them to change, to not to allow that behavior to continue, that it's not permissible. Uh, since all Christians aren't yet mature, they need to grow. Again, spiritual people are to walk in the Spirit. If they do otherwise, they're worldly and they should desist or cease walking worldly. Remaining worldly for any Christian, remaining a baby Christian, remaining an infant is not an option. It's not an option. Every Christian, if they're a baby Christian, should never ever want to stay a baby Christian. I remember whenever I went to a church... Um, In 2004, I was fresh out of seminary and my brain at that particular time had been filled with so much theology. It's 2004. And so, uh, you know, you come out of seminary with these lofty ideals and how everybody's just gonna hear these deep things about Jesus that you've packed your brain with because everybody's real concerned about superlapsarianism and infolapsarianism. And you know, you don't even know that's right? You can Google that later if you can even try to spell it. You got a Siri, superlapsarianism because I don't know how to spell it. That's not what we all do, right? When you don't know how to spell something, you just tell Siri, how do you spell? Spell, misspell. Um, anyway, uh, so anyway, I'm coming out of seminary and I've got all these things, right? And I'm, I'm at this new church and I'm talking with this guy. And I'm thinking, since he's um, a deacon in the church and a leader in the church and kind of presumed as, as somebody important, uh, that he wants to hear deep things. And I remember his, his retort back to me uh, was, I don't like to do the deep stuff. I like to keep it light and fluffy. And I remember thinking, did he just say that to me? Like, he really, he really just told me that he doesn't want to grow, he doesn 't want to know deep things, and I remember like telling Christy, "Can you believe that like uh, but the point that i 'm trying to make is no Christian ever, as he says, is to remain an infant if you have a baby, you know what 's going to happen as long as you 're feeding him he 's going to grow she 's going to grow you don 't have a choice like you 've got to get newer clothes you 've got to get bigger socks uh, the heels are like here sometimes. They got, you got to get bigger fo- shoes. you got to get all kinds of stuff, right? You're going to grow. And it's the same idea. Remaining an infant baby is not an option. You, you should never desire to just keep it light and fluffy. You should want to grow into the deeper things. Now, we all need to take heart here. Because if we view ourselves as immature, here's where you can take heart. The Bible does not count you out of being a Christian. Right here does not count you out. It's not super spiritual, going to hell and that's it, right? There's some middle ground here for backslidden, immature, baby Christian, whatever the term you want to use, right? There's some, some, some gracious allowance of God to use some kind of terminology to say, you're still a believer, but it's not at all, explicitly or implicitly in the text, allowable that you stay there. It's explicit that you, you never stay there. You strive continually to get out of there. So while you are in the family... And that's... If we just put ourselves back in this first century... Think of the mess that they are. And Paul is looking at them and saying... You're still part of the family. You are an absolute mess, Corinth. I could say that you're not Christians. Most people, as they look at you, would say... You're not Christians. Look look at this collective mess of sin you have. But Paul doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Instead with an amazing grace upon grace upon grace, he says, you're still in the family. It's time to be mature. And here's the thing. Everybody that's immature wants to be mature. They really do. They really do. If given the option and given the proper time or given the proper discipleship, that guy I I talked about, he didn't stay light and fluffy. The Lord, the Holy Spirit will kick you in the pants when you say crazy things like that, right? He's, He's super mature. Now I've seen crazy things happen in his life. Crazy growth. Um, so, uh, the good news is that the Holy Spirit, when we say things like that, doesn't keep us there. And nor do we. In our heart of hearts, and our love for Christ, if, if we're really His, we don't want to. So, so don't fool yourself when you, when you think, I'm fine with staying here. You know you're not. So today's the day. Today's the day to start removing yourself away from what would be baby Christianity, and start walking in a deeper walk. Now, I'm not, I don't mean deeper walk as in some mysterious, you know, secret club, secret handshake. Once you get, you know, into the seventh level, now you're finally mature. That's not what I mean when I say, I mean, we all, as believers, grow into a deeper understanding of the good news of Jesus. The foot of the cross is where we are found, or where we're justified, it's where we're saved. The foot of the cross is where we remain and we become sanctified. The foot of the cross, diving in, delving into, and trusting in, and understanding, and growing in our knowledge of what Christ has done for us. Continually reminding ourselves that we are not trying to earn or work for our salvation, that we're always starting at and working from a salvation already delivered to us, that we grow in that for the rest of our lives. That's maturing, is growing into the gospel, understanding the depths of the good news of Christ. The gospel isn't something we come to and then we move on to mature things. The gospel is the only thing that we mature into. And so, remaining an infant in Christ is not an option. Instead, we grow deeper and more into and understand what Christ has done. Now, back to the role of, of leaders. Leaders looking at this are, uh, in verses 1 through 4. We must properly discern the maturity of the people around us. If you're a dad, if you're a community group leader... If you're maybe the only guy at your your office that knows anything about the Bible, like you know where Genesis is uh, or something like that. So the first book of the Bible, um, it means beginning. So like um, if you're that guy, then you have an ability to discern with some kind of group around you where they are and begin the process of shaping them, teaching them, preaching, uh, proclaiming Christ, helping them see the gospel in some kind of manner. And so you need to properly now, it doesn't mean you're the pastor, but all of us can properly uh, address people and help them grow in their walk with Christ. Bring them into what would be the body of, a, of the church. So that's the first thing that we see is that leaders of the church need to discern the church of maturity and properly feed them. Uh, I'm, I'm a pastor here and uh, Joe, a guy named Joe Mueller and Jack Blankenship are also pastors here at Remedy. And we, we just strive to do the same thing. We strive every time to properly discern uh, where the church is in its maturity and pick appropriate books of the Bible and properly feed them. Uh, we picked the book of Acts some 45 sermons ago because we feel like we all need to grow in our, in our evangelism and mission. And so for 45 weeks, we've talked about evangelism and mission. It's been pretty, pretty fun. We went to Corinth because we wanted us all, all to take heart that no matter what's going on in our life, the good news of, God, of the gospel is that no matter where we are, Christ and his forgiveness trumps all these things. And we'll go back and we'll continue in our evangelism mission. We try to. And from from day one, we tried to preach this. I don't want this to sound proud. This isn't, don't take this like, I, like we're being proud. Um, we tried to preach what would be uh, sermons that are uh, through books of the Bible that would be deep sermons. I don't know how else to say it besides deep sermons. Because we believe not in ourselves. We don't believe that if I tell you a good joke and a funny story that you're going to grow spiritually, but instead we believe that the Bible is what causes you to grow. And so everybody I know that's a Christian wants to understand it. So the more I teach the Bible and the less I try to um, tell you a a funny story that happened to me, the more you're going to grow. The more you're going to grow. So we try to pattern our discerning where you are maturity wise and and feed you. And we, we don't want to stay in the shallow end of the pool, but we don't want to throw you out in the deep into the ocean and make you drown we want to as much as we can and as much as the lord actually equips us in our brains (laughs) to be able to to serve the church well by uh, not giving you milk but giving you solid food so wherever you are in your station in life discern those things don't shirk that responsibility if if it's been given to you don't say well i'm going to get to that one day if the lord is putting you in any kind of position in any kind of leadership position at all use that Use that for his glory. Discern where they are and properly feed them. When I say feed them, obviously I mean spiritually. You should feed them physically as well. They'll be your friend. But give them a good steak. All right, verse 5. So the second section, 5 through 9, what we're going to see when he's, as he's addressing leaders, he wants them, again, in the larger argument, and remember he's trying to address factions, he's going to help them see here in, this, in the second section that leaders are just servants. And, and no one thinks that the servant should be the greatest. No one thinks that, unless it's the servant master Jesus, right? But other than that, you just, that's a servant. You know, they, they, they serve, that's all they do. He's not, he's not the, the one that runs everything. And so in this second section, and the big argument about factions, he's helping them try to see that leaders in the church are still just servants anyway, and their job is to, to plant water, and they don't cause anything to grow. God causes people to grow, so you need to be uh, thinking about Christ and other people. You see it in 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? servants that's what they are though whom you believed as the lord assigned to each even what they did their work god was the one that assigned that to them so the lord is the one who deserves the glory i planted that's what paul says apollos watered but god gave the growth so here he's going to employ some kind of farming uh, illustration it says so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only god gives the growth he who plants and he whose waters are one so we need to understand that the planting and the watering are important, but the growth, the, the assigned role of God is, what, uh, is where the glory goes. He who plants and who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So there is reward one day for those people, but not, uh, they're not, they shouldn't be glory robbers, nor should we as a church uh, set them on pedestals and, and, and have factions in our church about it. Instead, we should just worship Christ, for we are God's Fellow workers, He uses the word fellow very intentionally with the Corinthian church as they're t- arguing about who's better between Paul and Cephas and, and Apollos. He says, we, talking about the leaders, are fellow workers all the same. Uh, fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. He uses those two kind of metaphors of who they are. He's going to use a third metaphor in verse 16, but he's right now he's telling them that you're God's field. So we came, we planted the seed, somebody else watered the seed, but something still has to happen in order for that seed to grow. And the person that created seeds and created water and created the idea of growth is the only one. So we can put all those things there and it's absolutely important that we do it. But in order for the plant to grow, God himself has to cause those other things that happen to be the impetus that cause, or the catalyst that causes the thing to grow. Therefore, there, whoever causes the growth is the one that receives the glory. So number two, members must remember that they are the Lord's servant called the plant and water we're just servants so there's no reason to be divided because all leaders are just servants And as he says this as i said he uses this farming illustration uh, to help us understand that we sometimes water or we sometimes plant the seed we sometimes water you've you've perhaps experienced this in your life you're the one that that told someone the gospel for a long time told the gospel of someone for a long time told the gospel f- just over and over and over and then you hear like, after telling somebody 25 times that Joe Schmo comes up and says the gospel and not even in a real convincing way, boom, they get saved. They're the water and they're like, you're like, what? I wanted to see that guy. I wanted to do, okay, wait a second. Shouldn't do that. That's, that's wrong motives, wrong motives. Or perhaps somebody else did it, right? And you're just like, hey, Jesus. And they're like, yeah. And then they get saved and you're like, man, 30 other people told you that and that lousy presentation is what saved you. It must be a God. So, and they hear it and they're like, so you led them to Christ, huh? No, I'm just kidding. So, like, the whole point is this, right? Um, <laughs> is that the, the seeding or the planting and the watering are important functions. There is no growth. There is no plant growing if no one puts a seed in the ground and waters it. You, you can run out to the river and get your water and, 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 and water it, right? So we, we can do the planting and watering. But there will be no growth if no one ever does the first things. God, this is the whole point of Romans 10 uh 17 through 22 the whole point is god commands us to go out and be the people that plant and water there will be no growth if we don't do our work right and we can talk about the ordination of god ordaining of god of us of us doing that from the eternity past anyway but we should readily go out and plant we should readily go out and water but as we do it we remember as we are uh as we are God's servants, that it's not for our own go- glory. Whenever someone is saved, whenever someone becomes a believer or grows in Christ, God is the life force that produces the harvest, not you, not me. The planting and the watering are essential. They're essential. So it, I'm not saying that our work is inconsequential. I'm saying our work is absolutely essential. But the growth comes from God. God gave the growth. So we don't do it for our own glory. As a matter of fact, he does tell us we'll receive our wages. Uh, so there is a promise. Uh, each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, I think this is a reference to the final days when the Lord comes again and we're in his heaven and he gives us our crowns, which we just take them and throw back at the feet. Like we don't walk around in heaven like, look at my trophy case, everybody. Like we just take those things and throw it back to Jesus and say, I don't deserve them anyway. But I think this is a reference to the final day when the Lord gives us crowns that we just say, I'm not worthy. Here they are. Uh, back to you, Lord, because you're the only one worthy. But I think that's what it's, So there will be... Uh, A wage is given to us, but nevertheless, it's not for our own. And it says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. So here we see in this second section that leaders are just God's servants. Called to serve God, called to give him glory. So there shouldn't be factions. If leaders are just servants, no one should think that one's greater than the other. Even in your own groups, even in your own life, even in your own podcasting, or, or whatever, right? Even your own authors you read. Everyone's just a servant. No one's better than the other. Now, you can say, sure, Fudd, you say that because you're in remote rock hill and nobody reads your books because you've never written one. Sure, yeah, I can say that. Um, but it's the truth. This is what the scriptures are telling us. We should not be divided over uh, human leaders because Christ is the one that receives the glory because he's the one that actually saves. He's the one that went to the cross. He's the one that saves. He's the one that gives the growth. And so it's all for his glory. Now, what you're going to see in this third section in 10 through 15, as he continues speaking to leaders, is that uh, leaders must carefully build the church. And as they carefully build the church, there's only but one foundation they build the church on. You'll never guess what it is. You got it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So uh, verses 10 through 15, we're going to see that. uh, Leaders must carefully build on the foundation of Jesus's gospel. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. That's not a Lego movie reference. Um, uh, Lego movie came way after this. Uh, As a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. What we're seeing here, this is literally like a wise master craftsman or a chief engineer. Um, This word master kind of in our English has been derived. The word that we have now in English is architect. Uh, but don't think of of, of like the, the blueprint drawer. This is more of like the on-site supervisor. Uh, but it still is where we get our word architect. But Paul's calling himself the uh, the master, the skilled master builder. And this is more like the on-site supervisor. He, he's there. He's, he's overseeing. He's in the trenches. He's with the people. He's rubbing shoulders. But but he's also in somewhat of a leadership position. And what he's doing is, is building. So he's wanting to build something. We just saw in verse 9 that we're God's building. And here we are looking at this building. And there's, there's something that has to be laid with the building. I, even as I was building the shed this past week, it's, we spent hours on just laying the, the stone underneath this gargantuan ridiculously large shed I'm building right but we spent hours just putting the block down I'm like it's good it's level no it's not you got to dig it out so I mean I would literally move the block and dig like a half an inch out with this big axe and stick it there there it is he's like nope got to do it again it ain't ready like but the foundation so, so, so important. Because as we put this gargantuan, it even shifted a little bit, right? It's a little half inch off. And if I hadn't done it right, the thing could just topple over and I got to start all over and then I'd be really upset, right? So the whole point is the foundation is essential. It's essential. Shaky foundation, weak foundation, uh, ridiculous foundation, sends the thing crashing down. The right foundation, the only foundation, the building is stable. God's building would be stable. So leaders must carefully build the church on the only foundation that, that, that we can build on, which is Jesus' gospel. And he calls himself this master builder. Um, and he said, and some, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. We'll talk about the care in just a second as we conclude this section. But we are, we are commanded to take care on how we build it. And says, so for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is jesus christ now uh, when we read that you can say well that means you can't lay a a foundation other than jesus well you can obviously so he's saying uh, no one can lay one no, no no sure foundation other than jesus and he says if anyone builds on foundation so let me stop here 10 and 11 are kind of the truth As he gets into verse 12, this is where he starts kind of the metaphor. You shouldn't read too much into these particular things or allegorize gold, silver, straw, stones, precious wood, hay straw. We shouldn't try to allegorize those things. Uh, But what you should know as he's doing the metaphor here is the first three things are good and you build your house on that. Ancient world understood those first three things in the list as as smart things to build something on. The last three things were not smart things to build your house on. You can say, so if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones... Those would be good. Wood, hay, straw, those would not be good. Each one's work will become manifest when the day, or when Jesus comes, will disclose it. So if you build your foundation on Jesus Christ when the day comes, the day is going to disclose it because we're going to be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work has been done on these things. And the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives on Jesus, then receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, if the if the pastor, leader of the church planted on something other than that, it says, uh, he will suffer loss. That means some of those people in the church probably won't go to heaven, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So we want to, as pastor leaders, set the right foundation because people's eternities are at stake. People's eternities are at stake. So we're to set it on the gospel. Set it on the good news of Jesus. Uh, Craig Blomberg says it this way, the foundation of any truly Christian edifice, that just means structure, is, um, <laughs> had to look that one up, must be cross, Must be the cross-centered gospel of Jesus Christ. So here, uh, when it says, which is Jesus Christ, I think Paul's shorthanding, um, yes, it's about Jesus, and we don't want to make things about Jesus' work over Jesus himself. I'm not trying to pay short shrift to Jesus and make it all about the work. But the reason why we're saved is because of the cross. The reason why we are able to know Christ and give Christ glory and worship Jesus is because he was willing to die for us on the cross and forgive us of our sin. And now we worship Jesus because of the work he's done. So here, I think Paul's shorthanding the work, the, the cross of Jesus when he says, um, which is Jesus Christ, but it still is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. So um, I thought it'd be helpful to remind us all of the good news we could go multiple places in the Bible. We've said this multiple times. The gospel is this multifaceted thing that we can look at and all kinds of different avenues. Uh, I want to look at it... Uh, in the same correspondence, not First Corinthians, but Second Corinthians, and remind us all, of the good news of Jesus, from 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, 21, the sure foundation, the only foundation, when a leader is going to, carefully build the church, he must build it on this, and this alone, so hear this, as a tool, to be able to build, but hear this also, for your own edification, in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life, this is what your heart, and mind, and life are built on, this is what your hope is, this is what your only hope is, in order to be able to be saved. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. For our sake. He God. Made him Jesus to be sin. Who knew no sin. He was perfection. He had never sinned ever. And as, as Christ. Obeyed the will of the father. To come forward. He was absolutely perfect. And he came to earth. And then he made him to be sin. In other words. All the sin of all the family of God. Was put on him on that day on the cross. And it says he made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of your sin, all of my sin, all of it was put on the perfect atonement. The perfect atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the Lamb of God. All of it. And then his righteousness, all of his righteousness was then taken and put on us. Martin Luther calls it the great exchange where all of our sins put on Christ. And God puts all of his righteous wrath and anger on that, and all of Christ's righteousness, therefore, is imputed to us. And now, for those who trust that Jesus took our place, believe in that. Now we are known at, from God and by God to be holy. You, because of Jesus' work on the cross, because He became sin, who knows sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You are holy. Do you hear that very often? People tell you that you're blameless. You're righteous. In God's eyes, he sees Christ. And when he looks at you, he sees perfection because of the good news of Christ. I know my own heart. That blows me away every time I hear it. He sees me as holy, blameless, righteous, because we're his bride, we're his church. And this is the only foundation. The only foundation that you can grow the church. If we make it about snazzy slides and awesome bands and great fog machines or whatever else, we're missing the whole point. Sure, those things are fine. I'm not saying they're wrong. You want to have a fog machine? Have a fog machine, right? You want to have a cool background or black background because that's even more cool or whatever, right? Like, whatever. Okay. But without the gospel of Jesus, you're just playing. You're just playing we are having a drama every week. The gospel of Jesus is the only foundation that the church can be built on. And it's the message that has rung through and destroyed, I mean, just absolutely destroyed human history over the last 2,000 years, saving scores of people, saving scores of people. It's the only foundation we have. And it's telling us that we must build the church this way. We must hope in this in this only, so in your interactions with people, in your hoping, in your praying, in your sharing, is the foundation of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, your only hope. Is it what? Is it what we as Remedy Church are building? Is it what you and your own families are building? Is it what you at your, your your jobs or your roommates or whoever you're building? We want you to think about that deeply, and build the church, build God's church, make disciples, as we're told in Matthew 28, on the foundation of Jesus's gospel and it alone. Now, we're told that the church must be built with care. Let each one take care how he builds upon the church. And so as we're thinking about that, I think that's what it means. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the absolute foundation. We, we can't build the church on anything else. We're not building the church. We're just building a crowd starts with a c but it's not not the church but we need to we need to do this with care so it's down i think three ideas here of what i think that can mean Um, the first one is time first one is time the way that you can show someone that you care is actually give them time if you give them a quick text versus three hours face to face that's a whole lot don't pack your schedule so full that you can't give time to people. The way that we care, the way that we lay the foundation is time. We, have, we care enough to give people time. Also, we care by, by thinking. We care by thinking. Maybe that's not what you have thought of, but I, I think this is important. We care by thinking well. People are complex, not everybody. No one actually deals with things the exact same way. Everybody is absolutely complex. And so we care pastorally, lovingly as community group leaders or fellow believers uh, in Jesus, fellow sisters and, and brothers with people. We care to think correctly about how to speak with them and think deeply about the gospel and how it relates to their life. What is the go- how does the gospel speak here? We wanna, we wanna think wisely and think well. God has given us all brains and he wants us to use them, right? Doesn't want them to just turn to mush by watching too much Netflix. He wants us to use them to help people and grow people, right? So a way that we can care is by time and thought. Like being not just a deep thinker, but d- being a deep thinker about people and how to love them and care for them. The last one is love. The way that we can show people is by, is by loving them. No matter who they are, they don't need to be famous, they don't need to be popular, it can be the least of these. But we, we take care on how to build the church by loving people really coming around them really knowing who they are when we ask a question about what's going on in their life not like uh-huh yeah uh-huh and then we're looking around trying to look for someone else and we're like okay okay yeah oh that's great and then we like but we stop and i'm gonna drown out everything else and when you're telling me what's going on in your life i'm gonna look at you and i'm gonna listen i'm really gonna listen i'm not thinking about the top three things i want to say back to you so that after soon as you finish like and here's something else like, but i'm just gonna soak it in right we we love people by listening give them time thinking about what's going on and really uh taking interest in who they are. If they like hockey or yarn spinning or whatever it is, right, and you think that's just the most bizarre thing in the world, lizard collecting, I don't know, like, oh, that's great. Let me come see it. Whatever it is, right? I know those are random things probably no one does, but you know what I mean. Um, we want to love them. So those things are, are secondary. They're, they're, they're not the thing. The, the thing, the foundation is Jesus, but the way that we love them and set that foundation is by being the kind of person, as he says in verse 11, we take care of how. Yes, we take care by, by preaching the gospel and letting the gospel be the only foundation, but also just in a pastoral sense, we do this. We care for them by time, thought and, and, and love. All right, the last section, verse 16 and 17 is this. He's gonna tell them, leaders, I've talked to you, I've helped you understand, but you need to consider yourself uh, warned here. If you destroy the church, you will be destroyed. So, verse 16 and 17. Leaders consider yourselves warned if you destroy the church, which is God's temple. You can see, do you not know you should know this before we read sixteen and seventeen. Now, if you're familiar with First Corinthians, you've read chapter six. In chapter six, it tells us that we're individually, we're the Lord's temple. The Holy Spirit resides in us, and you're individually the Lord's temple, and you should not, as individual Lord's Lord's temple with the Spirit residing in you, um, associate with sexual morality because Jesus cannot be associated with sexual morality. Don't you know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit whom Christ bought, therefore flee from sexual morality. In chapter six, that's an individualistic use of the word temple here. Don't think of that. In chapter three, it's not you singular. Chapter three, it's you you plural. We're gonna southernize this joker, right? So if you have a a, a pen, feel free in verses 16 and 17. When you see the word you, just just write right through it. This isn't the original manuscripts of Paul. You're not going to get in trouble with the Holy Spirit. You can actually write the word y'all right above it. This is all you plural. The reason why this is important is because Paul's talking to the corporate church. He's saying, not not you who have the Holy Spirit. He's saying, y'all. Think of who he's talking to. He's he's talking to the Corinthian church. I mean, man, they're a mess, right? Y'all are God's temple. Y'all are God's temple. Now, this is especially important in Corinth, where there's a temple that's been built to the goddess of love or the goddess of of, um, sexual morality that's been built there. And he's saying, you're not a temple like the rest of the Corinthian people. Instead, you are God's temple. You are God's temple. So he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So you should know this. And here comes the, the caution to the leaders. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now, this isn't a mixed metaphor. This isn't a mixed in words here. This is straight up. If you destroy the church, God will destroy you, not eventually annihilated into nothingness. This is, as commentators were saying, you are going to hell. You were never a believer, even as a leader. And if you destroy what would be the church, God's, God's bride, you weren't a Christian, and therefore you will also, uh, you will go to hell. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You are that temple. So we've seen in these pictures that he's called the church God's field in verse number 9. And he's also said that they're God's building. And now he's saying that they're God's temple. And as I said, this has not, it's not like, you're not like the pagan temples of the city. Instead, you're a holy temple. Those pagan temples are absolutely irreverent. They're debaucherous. But you, y'all Corinthians, y'all are holy right back to the foundation of the gospel. You are blameless, righteous. Because of Jesus, you're the temple of God. You are Corinth Church, Remedy Church. You are the most holy and valuable structure of God's. You're the church. Note this you is y'all as he's talking to them. And he's helping them see that as pastors as leaders in the church, you are cautioned. You should never do anything to destroy the church. You don't make it about you. You don't build it on your personality. You don't build it on anything other than the foundation of Jesus. Any of those things will eventually bring that church to ruin and God will destroy you. It's to be understood in the strongest of terms. And that through Paul, he's saying, since that's the case, since that's the case, you shouldn't make the church in Corinth about any leader. You should make the church in Corinth about Jesus. Now, in the last section, this won't be on the screen, but he's really kind of concluding this whole thing that he's writing. In the last section, basically he's going to say, uh, the reason why there shouldn't be factions in the church about leaders is because every leader just belongs to Jesus anyway. Every leader and you belong to Jesus. Verse 18. Let... No one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. That just means you can't outsmart God. You you just can't, right? God invented the concept of trying to outsmart. And so you can't do it. Because he invented that concept. You'll never ever do it. Ever. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness or folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts... ...of the wise, that they're futile. Let no one boast in men. So don't boast in Apollos, don't boast in Paul, don't boast in Cephas. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas... ...or the world or life or death or the present or future. All are yours, and here it is. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So all the leaders here are Jesus's anyway. So don't make it about the leaders. Instead, make it about Christ. Therefore, there wouldn't be any factions... Instead, it would all be for Christ and all for his glory. And he's imploring the leaders and every person in that church to not make it about themselves, not make it about the leaders, but instead make it about Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would do the same thing, that we would make this church and our lives about you, that if we're far from you, like the wayward son, we would be drawn back by this good news of the gospel. The Corinthians were far, and yet you promised, even in in their infant stage, that they were still believers. And they just needed to repent and turn. And that if there's anyone here that's there, Lord, that they would repent and come back to you. Because there is an open arm from you in the good news of the gospel. We pray that all of us, as believers in Christ, would, would uh, as we strive to make disciples, would make the foundation of the good news of, of Jesus Christ our only hope. That we would not rely on anything else. We would not rely on any other uh, human craftiness or any other kind of slick plan. There's only one plan, and it's the good news of Jesus. And that would be our only desire, is to preach Christ, to be the church, and that we would see people come to know Christ through that. We pray that we would remember that we are just servants. We are your servants, and that no one in the church, pastor, or anyone, is more important than the other. Instead, all are yours, and you are the the lead pastor, as First Peter 5 says. You're the chief shepherd. We love you, Lord, and pray this all in your precious name. Amen.